You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. If we as God's people could really truly catch a hold of Revelation chapter 4, I think such peace would be brought into our hearts. It's so easy for us to worry. It's so easy for us to be perplexed. It's so easy for us to be stressed out in life. But Revelation chapter 4 reveals to us the throne room of God and really helps us discover what life is really, truly all about and where our lives are actually headed as God's people. And so the glory of God here in Revelation chapter 4. Now the book of Revelation, as I've said time and time again, is the only book of the Bible that comes with its own divine outline. Chapter 1 verse 19, Jesus speaking to John says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And so chapter 1 in the book of Revelation, uh, is the record of the things that John had seen up to that point. In chapter 1, verse 19, the 18 verses before it, John wrote of those things, the things that he had seen. Number two, the things that are, uh, that's the period that John was actually living in. He had seen the seven churches in Asia Minor, knew of the seven literal, historical physical churches in Asia Minor. And so he wrote to those seven churches, of course, letters from Christ. And so write the things that are. And then Jesus said, and write the things that are to take place after this. And it's so interesting that in chapter four, listen to the first word. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. And so Jesus in chapter 1 verse 19 gave John the third part of the book, the things that will take place after this. And in chapter 4 verse 1, twice that phrase is repeated, Here are the things which will take place after this after this. So chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22 in the view that I'm taking of the book of Revelation is yet future, the things that will come after this. And as I've mentioned before, this will be a simple, literal, as long as the text provides for it, chronological approach to the book of Revelation, a futurist view of the book. And so uh, John in verse 1 shifts our attention to the things that will happen after this. So a uh, beautiful key here to understanding the book of Revelation. And, and the first thing that he hears is he hears this voice like a trumpet saying, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Come up here. Now if I for one personally believe that at this particular moment, although I would never teach it as a doctrine from this verse in particular, I believe that this verse is a wonderful illustration of the 
doctrine of the rapture of the church. I know that can be a divisive doctrine at times. I know that some people uh, don't believe in the rapture of the church or at least don't believe in this particular timing of the rapture of of the church before any of the wrath of God is poured out upon the world. But Paul said it like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And that's such an interesting phrase because I think it indicates to us that Paul understood that this was a special teaching that he was about to give. And Paul certainly did that from time to time. He would reveal things that previously were still mysteries. And I believe he does that here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Here's a special teaching, in other words, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left here on earth, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And isn't it interesting here that John says that when that event takes place, there will be a voice of an archangel, there will be the cry of command and the sound of the trumpet of God. And back in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, it says that John heard his voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. And so I think a beautiful uh, allusion to the rapture of the church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 through 53, that in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. And I think that's the glorious uh, truth of the rapture of the church. Now, a lot of people want to want to ask about the timing of the rapture of the church. When will this actually occur? And I think there's a couple of things in scripture that help us to get Uh, the idea of, or a sense of the timing. First of all, Matthew 25, verse 13, Jesus said that these events will happen at an unknown hour. So to me, that means that this is an imminent event, that this is something that could happen at any moment, that the Lord could return and the Lord could call his children home to be with him. Secondly, I think also concerning timing, we read in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, of an an event that is yet future called the time of Jacob's trouble. In other words, a time that God is going to turn his attention once again to the nation of Israel. It will be a difficult time, but a special time. And when we move forward here in the book of Revelation, we'll discover that from chapter 6 forward, the church will not be mentioned. Up to this point, In Revelation uh, chapter 1 through 3, the church has been mentioned some 16 times. But following this event, the church will no longer be mentioned. And so I believe that Revelation 6 through Revelation 19 is the time of Jacob's trouble, where the church is not dealt with because the church is mysteriously absent. Also, concerning the timing, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 tells us that We as God's children are not appointed to God's wrath. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we won't experience wrath in this world. We'll experience the wrath of the devil, to be sure, and the wrath of the world and persecution. We'll experience the wrath of built-in consequences to sin. And we'll, we'll experience, of course, God's discipline. Amen. But we will not experience the wrath of God. That was experienced by Christ on the cross for his children. And so we are not appointed to the wrath of God. And what you read of in Revelation 6 through 18, it's very clear that it is the direct wrath of God upon this world. So I believe that the timing of the rapture of the church will be pre the wrath of God. Also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, there's an indication that a moment in time is coming where the, the one who is restraining the evil on the world will be removed. And all hell, so to speak, will break loose. And I believe that restrainer to be none other than the Holy Spirit who resides inside of his church. And so I believe personally that God's church will be called up to be with him after the time of the Gentiles, the era, the period of the church, that we will meet the Lord in the air, that we will be with him for a seven-year period of time. And after those seven years, we will return with him where he will conquer the nations in rebellion against him. And we will rule and reign for a millennial period and kingdom here on earth. And then after all of that, the heavens and the earth will melt away with a fervent heat and the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be revealed. And thus we will always be with the Lord. And so I believe that if I was looking for the rapture in the book of Revelation, I would slot it right here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I can't wait to see how it actually all happens. Now in verse 2, John writes and says, At once I was in the Spirit. So at once, that's a, you know that sounds like in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye language to me. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now immediately, John is caught up into heaven, and immediately, his attention, his gaze, his focus, is directed towards the throne of God. Now the throne is going to be mentioned over a dozen times in this chapter. It is the centerpiece of this section. It's all about the throne and the one who is seated upon the throne. This is God the Father seated upon the throne. This is, this is a, a wonderful and awful and awesome reality that John is experiencing in the throne room of God. And th the throne, the throne, I, I think it speaks of two major realities for a Christian. First of all, the throne of God speaks of his absolute control. In other words, we would say it to each other like this. In a moment of trial and difficulty, we might look at one another and say, but God is still on the throne. And when we say that, we're indicating that he's in control, that, that things have not escaped his gaze and his blessing and, and covering. It says in Psalm 29, verse 10, it says that God sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. 
This speaks of the control of God. And, you know, if you really think about it, there was a moment in human history when God was in the most supreme control, when it looked from the outside, looking in, like God was out of control and off of the throne. And that was when Jesus was betrayed by man and sentenced to death on the cross and allowed to die on the cross of Calvary. In one sense, if you were a follower of Christ at that moment, you may have said to yourself, God seems to have become out of control. He seems to have lost control here. But of course, we know from Acts 2 verse 23 and just from the overall course of Scripture that Jesus was delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's what Peter said in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And so to remember that God is seated, that God is on the throne, that God is in control, I think this ought to help our lives immensely to know of the control of God, the calm that is in and with God, the throne and, and the control that he has. But I think it also speaks of his authority. He's in control as he's seated on the throne, but he has a throne. And that indicates his authority. And of course, secular humanism would love to say that man is in control and the false religions of the world would love to put the devil in a place of control. But ultimately, there is an authority who responds to no authority. And that authority is God himself. And so John called up to heaven. He sees the throne room of God and he's immediately infatuated with the throne and he attempts to describe it as best he can. It says, and he who sat there, verse three, had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now we're going to see as we move through the book of Revelation, we're going to see this phrase, the appearance of, or some of your Bibles may say it was like Jasper and like uh, emerald or like sargius stone or carnelian. It was like this or like that. And this is what John is going to do throughout the rest of the book of Revelation because he understands that what he's seeing isn't actually jasper, carnelian, and emerald, but it's like it. And it's the best term that he can use to describe what he is seeing. And so we'll see that throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, just moments where John does his best to describe what he sees. But notice that he's just seeing here the glory of God. You know, the appearance of all of these precious stones, uh, diamond-like, reddish, greenish stones that are emanating the glory of God, so much so that he says around the throne was a rainbow. A rainbow. This is beautiful course, we go all the way back to the book of Genesis to see the origin of the rainbow that God hung in the sky after the flood. It was God's way of saying, I've made a covenant with man that I will never again judge the world with a worldwide flood. That's not how I'll do it. And God placed the rainbow in the sky as a reminder of that covenant. And so with a throne, you have the message that says, I can do whatever I want. I'm on the throne. But the rainbow, it says, I will limit myself by my covenants and by my word. And so John immediately begins to see the glory of God. 
And around the throne, verse 4, were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so he looks around this throne and he sees there are these 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were these 24 elders, you know, around the main throne. Their their authority, if they have any, comes from the authority on that central throne. And seated on these thrones are 24 elders. Right now, we have, since John wrote this, tried to figure out who these 24 elders are. You know, are they the 24 orders of the priesthood mentioned in 1 Chronicles 24? Are they the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel? What are and who are these 24 elders? And the answer, of course, is we cannot be entirely sure. One thing that we do know here is that they are dressed, in verse 4, with white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Now, this is very similar to the dress that Jesus promised that the overcomers would have in Revelation 2 and 3. That they be given crowns, Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. That they be given thrones, Revelation 3 verse 21. And that they be clothed in white, Revelation 3 verse 5. And these people that received those rewards were the overcomers from the church. And so it's possible, maybe there's a hint there, that... Uh, These figures somehow, in some way, represent the body of Christ and represent the church. But there are these 24 elders, and we'll get back to them in just a moment. But from the throne, verse 5, came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So John continues to describe what he's seeing, what he's experiencing, what he's feeling. And there he is in the presence of God. And he he sees these flashes of lightning and these rumblings and peals of thunder and burning seven torches of fire, the seven spirits of God. It's it's an ominous moment. And of course, I, I think there should be an immediate, you know, connection to an allusion to in the mind of the Bible student to the giving of the law of God on Mount Sinai. There was fire, there were flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder, there was smoke. It was an ominous, glorious moment and event. Of course, a similar thing was found when God made a covenant with Abraham. Not the covenant on Mount Sinai, but the covenant with Abraham. When Abraham fell asleep in the middle of the sacrifices that he offered to God and God then passed through them and there was darkness. It was a horrible darkness, a great sleep upon Abraham. There was, uh, you know, lightning and and, uh, thundering. It was a dark and ominous time. But I think it should also remind us of the new covenant that God has given to us through the blood of Christ. You remember what that was like? There was an earthquake, the shaking of the earth the trembling and the rumbling. There was the darkness that came over the land for a period of three hours, the sun losing its light. And so I think in in all of those, there's the hint, at least, that God was involved with each one of those covenants and, and that this God is now present 
and that John is present in the presence of this God. The rumblings, the flashes of lightning, the peals of thunder, they all point to and hint at the glory of God. And around the throne, verse 6, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Again, a repeated phrase in the book of Revelation, who was and is and is to come. But John here mentions these four living creatures. Now, this is not the first time in Scripture that these creatures are mentioned. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 28. There is the mention of these angelic beings who were around and before the throne of God, referred to as the cherubim and the seraphim in Scripture. The interesting thing is that when Ezekiel recounts it in Ezekiel 28, he's speaking for a moment to the prince of Tyre, an actual political figure, a man, and then he begins to talk to the king of Tyre from reading the, the description could never have been a man. And he says of that king of Tyre, who is wicked and fallen, he says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. And as you continue to read it, it seems obvious that Ezekiel is speaking of the devil himself. And so my opinion in comparing scripture with scripture is that the devil used to be one of these cherubs. He used to be one of these worship leaders in heaven who was perpetually singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so basically what you have with the devil is, the, is a common problem. He got his eyes off of God and his glory and beauty, and he got his eyes upon his own glory and beauty. And Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 28, he says, And you were lifted up because of your beauty. In other words, he began to go inward and be infatuated with self, which is the plague of humanity. And when, we're, when our focus is on ourselves, we are not at our best. And here we find that even in the angelic realm. And so these angels, they fly and they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is or who was and is and is to come. Now in verse 9 it says, Whenever the living creatures... Give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Whenever they sing that song, which is at all times, we saw in verse 8 that they never cease to say. <laughs> so at all times, it says there in verse 10, that when that happens, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. One thing I want you to see here about the situation in heaven is that the 24 thrones and elders are all seated around the throne. The cherubs are flying around the throne. 
Everything in heaven is centered around God. Everything in heaven is centered around the throne of God. It's, it's all about him. There's, there's an allusion to that, of course, in the Old Testament when you see the way that God wanted the people of Israel to camp in the wilderness. There was the tabernacle. Inside of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. Inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a lid for the Ark of the Covenant that had the engravings of two angels or cherubs on top of it. And where the wings touched was said to be the seat of God, the throne of God. And we know that that was merely a, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us, it was an image of the heavenly reality. And God told the people of Israel to camp all around that tabernacle. And when they were moving out, the tabernacle stuff and the Ark of the Covenant was to travel in the middle of the nation. What that says to us is that in the perfect place, which is heaven, we pray often, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, guess who is the center of all in heaven? It's God. It's God. And that's what I mean when I say that man is at his best when God is at the center of our lives, when he has the priority in our lives personally, when he has the priority of our lives in our churches, then we're at our healthiest and best place and state. And so here in heaven, we see that God is at the center of all things. And, and listen, if you've pushed God out to the fringe, if you've pushed him to sort of this, you know, extraneous relationship or obligation, well, then I have to tell you that you, you are absolutely missing it. You are missing out on what you've been created to be. You've been created as a worshiper. It says here in verse 10 that they, they cast down their crowns and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They, they tell him, worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things and by your will they existed and were created. In other words, they are absolutely worshiping the Lord. He is at the center of all things. And God must be on his throne. He must be enthroned in our hearts and at the center of all things, if we're to have joy, if we're to have peace, if we're to have gladness. You know, it says there that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that one day Jesus walked by John the Baptist, and John looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. He said it to two of his, his own disciples. Those disciples were Andrew and probably John, the author of the Gospel of John, and they went and followed Jesus. He said, what are you seeking? And they said, well, where are you staying? We, we'd like to talk to you for a while. They go and they meet with Jesus for a long amount of time. And, and, and out of that moment, Andrew runs out to find his brother, his brother Simon, who became Peter, and said, we have found him who is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And I find that when people anoint other things, other people, and place other things or other people at the center of their lives, a great darkness and sadness overcomes them. But for the person who has God at the center of all things within their life, there is great joy, there is great gladness, there is great zeal. May you be a person who has God on the throne of your heart 
and at the center of your life. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.